So, my name's Nick, and, I, and I'm going to tell... Oh, great. Okay, good. <laughs> my name's Nick, and I have to tell you this crazy story about something that happened to me. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. My name is Nick, as I said, and I live in this big city with this awesome apartment. And in this apartment, I have this really awesome couch where I sit and I can like have my remote control and my box of cookies and just like watch TV all the time. You know what I mean? I guess I can sit. And so I can just sit there and just like do everything that feels comfortable and relaxing. Because you know, to be honest, I'm a really they're going to sit on the couch and they're going to watch TV all day long and they're going to... Did you read my story already? Is, is this about you? Okay. So anyway, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I like things to be pretty straightforward. I don't like a lot of problems or discomfort. That's the way I want it. But then, one day, not too long ago, something changed everything. I know, I was sitting on my couch, minding my own business, eating cookies, watching television, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, my phone starts ringing. And I'm like, who is this? Because it might be Leanne, who always calls me up and is like, do you want to go to the movies or stuff like that? And I'm like, no, that's dangerous. You can, you got to walk, you know, you, there's so many things that can happen to you when you're walking to the movies oh, or through I the park. Going to the movie wow. That is almost word for word what I was about to say. <laughs> That is crazy. I guess everything's a little dangerous. But instead, I answered my phone, and then I heard a, a woman's voice, and it said, Nick, this is Adventure calling. Adventure? Uh, I don't know anyone named Adventure. Who is this? Are this you sure you have the a, right number? This, yes, this is the right number. This is Adventure, and I am calling for you. What? Great treasures await you. <laughs> Excitement. Explorations, amazing experiences in far-off lands. You're never going to get anywhere if you stay in that concrete box of yours. You need to come out. Find your destiny. It's not going to come in there and sit in your lap. Yeah, I don't know who this is, but uh, I don't know anyone named Adventure. I, I want to stay here, so uh, yeah, I don't know who you are. Well, thanks for sharing, but that's not going to happen. I'll and, see you soon. And then she just hung up on me. Can you believe that? Yeah, I know. So, just as I put the phone back into my pocket, the walls began to quake, and the ground began to shake, and the room started spinning, and all of a sudden I fell over, and everything went dark. And then I woke up in the middle of water, right at the shore of a big island. I know, that's what I said. So as I, so as I tried to figure out what's next, that woman appeared and she said, Well, Nick, I see you've made it. Now it's time to go. And I recognized her voice. Hey, you're the one from the phone. How do I get out of here? What's the big deal? I want to go home. Well, and Adventure said, This boat is going even farther away. So pretty much your only option is to get off and explore the island and see if you can find your way home from there. But I don't want to explore. I want to go home now. How do I get home? 
Adventure just looked at me with those big eyes of hers, you know, those mom eyes where we all know exactly what she means. Yeah. And I said, and I realized that I didn't have any choice. Okay, okay, I said. I'll go to the island. How do I get there? How do you get there? You just step out of the boat and walk. It's not that far, and the water's not that deep. Are you crazy? I'm not stepping out into that water. It might be cold. It might be wet. There might be sea urchins or clobsters or squiddlies. You never know what could oh be in there. Oh, Are you sorry. crazy? Well, I suppose it's all true. This is the water of sleeping unknowns, after all. So I suppose anything could happen, but you'll probably be fine. Well, there didn't seem to be much choice. So I stepped into the water, and as it turned out, it wasn't so bad. It was actually kind of nice. But I didn't know what was in it, so I ran through the water to get to the beach. But once I got onto the beach, it was so hot. I was like, ow, 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 and trying to run across the beach to get to the other side. Hey, what's the big idea? I yelled to Adventure, who was somehow already on the other side near the forest. Uh, this sand is so hot. What do I do? Uh, this is the beach of temporary discomfort. The sand is a bit hot, but if you squish your toes into it, you'll get down to the cool sand. Okay, so I pushed my feet deep into the sand, deeper and deeper into that cooler sand, and finally, it felt good. That was a lot better. I thought about staying there for a while, but I wanted to get home to my cookies and my television and my couch that I talked to you guys about. So I shuffled my feet across the beach to where Adventure was standing. And she was standing at the foot of a broad, tall mountain. It looked so high. I'd never climbed anything that high before. Not even like a bunk bed. That was like the highest thing I could ever imagine climbing. Uh, you might get cold because I just... So What's I asked, the problem? How am I going to get up this mountain? I complained. It, was, it has no paved paths or handrails or an elevator. Well, that's true. This is the mountain of extreme difficulty. The <clears throat> only way to get over it is to climb it. Mm -hmm. Yet again, it didn't seem like I had a choice, so I started up the mountain. I was thought, oh, who is this adventurer anyway? Make him coming into my apartment and telling me I gotta go on this adventure and all these things. And then now I get here, and then all of a sudden I started realizing, hey, I'm pretty good at this. I like grabbed a hand here and a foot there, and all of a sudden I was starting to get up, and I was climbing, and I was climbing, and all of a sudden I got to the top. And all of the things that I saw the view was beautiful. All the hills and the valleys were covered in trees with meadows and streams. It looked like paintings that I'd saw in TV documentaries about famous artists. But it was real. And down to my left, just on the other side of a slightly lower peak, I could see an emerald green lake shimmering in the sun. So I was immediately seized with this deep desire to go and jump into it, to swim, twisting and turning under the water with the sun's beams reflecting down into it. So I asked Adventure, hey, what is that lake down there on the other side of the peak? That is the lake of endless possibility. Quite amazing, isn't it? Well, it sure is. How do I get there? Well, you could take the rickety bridge of uncertainty. <laughs> So I looked over and there was this bridge. It looked like toothpicks tied together with two strands of dental floss, you know? And so I was like, walk across that? Are you insane? It looks like it could fall apart at any second. Well, it hasn't fallen apart yet, and it's been there for a long time. But it's up to you. What do you want to do? What do you mean it's up to me? Just what I said. I can't tell you which way to go. There are some places in life where you have to make your own decisions. And here, 
on the peak of ultimate responsibility is one of them. So I looked at the bridge. I was terrified, but to tell the truth, there was something kind of exciting about this possibility. So the next minute, I found myself stepping onto the rickety bridge of uncertainty, and as I walked, it swung back and forth. It was hundreds of feet into the air. It was like I was walking in space, scary, terrifying, but great. Step after step, I went until, believe it or not, I made it to the other side. And when I got there, I found something I had never expected. Oh, you'll never catch, you know, you, you, not even you. You'll never guess this. On the top of the mountain was this U-shaped tube with water running down it. Yes, you guessed it. It was the water slide of utter uncontrollability. <laughs> yeah, that's not even the scale, I swear. <laughs> This time, I didn't even hesitate. I ran up to that water slide and I jumped into it face first. Down I went faster and faster and faster. I had no way of steering, no way of stopping, no way of doing anything but going faster and faster down the slide. The only thing I could do was yell and to shout, Yahoo! And so I sailed down for what seemed like forever and then suddenly it, the slide ended and I flew up into the air and came down with a humongous splash, graceful splash, into the lake of endless possibilities. Oh, the water was clear and pure. It was so fresh, filled with green and blue light. I twisted and turned and swam and flipped under the water. I felt possibilities swirling around me. I was so comfortable, so relaxed, so excited, so amazed. I came up to the surface to take a big breath of, breath of fresh air. I was swimming up and up and up, and I broke through, and somehow, impossibly, I was back in my apartment with my couch and my cookies and my TV, and I was like, Everything was back to normal, and I was just like, this is awful. And I jumped up, hey, what happened? Where's the water? Where's the lake? Where's the water slide? <laughs> but there was no one to answer. I just fell onto the couch, collapsing. How could this be? I was just rocketing down the water slide of utter uncontrollability, and then I splashed into the lake, and then I was swimming, and it was so great. I want to go back. How can I go back? And then my phone was ringing, and I, I pulled it out of my pocket, feeling like this was a dream or a movie of some kind. And I picked it up. Maybe it was Adventure calling. Adventure, is that you? Hello, Adventure, is that... I want to go back to the Lake of Endless Possibilities. How do I get there? But it was an adventure. It was just Leanne again. <laughs> you know, she was asking if I wanted to go for a walk in the park. I said... She asks me this pretty often, and I usually say no because, well, you know, you can get dirty out there, and you never know how the traffic's going to be. And I looked at the phone again, though, and I thought about this adventure I just went on. Yeah, it's like you were swimming up the chimney. And I realized that maybe it was adventure calling. So I put the phone back up to my ear, and I said, Hey, Leanne, yeah, that sounds great. And I hung up. And so I hope that all of you, and all of you, when the time comes for adventure to call you, that you pick up the phone, that you answer it, and that you say yes. I do what at night, uh, I was dreaming about I had an adventure. Uh, wow! No, I'm just kidding. What happened? Uh, I went underwater and saw the shark that swam away and I jumped on the that's scary. That's scary. So we're going to sing our kids off to their classes now. 
And so please join us in singing. One reading today to guide us. And the reading comes from the writer Parker Palmer from the introduction to his book, A Hidden Wholeness, The Journey Toward an Undivided Life. There was a time when farmers on the Great Plains at the first sign of a blizzard would run a rope from the back door out to the barn. They all knew stories of people who had wandered off and been frozen to death, having lost sight of home in a whiteout while still in their own backyards. Today, we live in a blizzard of another sort. It swirls around us as economic injustice, ecological ruin, physical and spiritual violence, and their inevitable outcome, war. It swirls within us as fear and frenzy, greed and deceit, and indifference to the suffering of others. We all know stories of people who have wandered off into this madness and been separated from their own souls, losing their moral bearings and even their mortal lives. They make headlines because they take so many innocents down with them. The lost ones come from every walk of life, clergy and cl corporate executives, politicians and people on the street, celebrities and school children. Some of us fear that we or those we love will become lost in the storm. Some are lost at this moment and are trying to find their way home. Some are lost without even knowing it. And some are using the blizzard as cover while cynically exploiting its chaos for private gain. So it is easy to believe the poet's claim that the blizzard of the world has overturned the order of the soul. Easy to believe that the soul, that life-giving core of the human self with its hunger for truth and justice, love and forgiveness has lost all power to guide our lives. But my own experience of the blizzard, which includes getting lost in it more often than I'd like to admit, tells me that it is not so. The soul's order can never be destroyed. It can be obscured by the whiteout. We may forget or deny that its guidance is close at hand, and yet we are still in the soul's backyard with chance after chance to regain our bearings. This book is about tying a rope from the back door out to the barn so that we can find our way home again. When we catch sight of the soul, we can survive the blizzard without losing our hope or our way. When we catch sight of the soul, we can become healers in a wounded world, in the family, in the neighborhood, in the workplace, and in political life. As we are called back to our hidden wholeness amid the violence 
of the storm. The violence of the storm. As a lifelong Midwesterner, I have slowly come to understand the violence of the storm. I remember when Chicago was hit by a massive blizzard during my senior year of college in 2011. It was one of the worst blizzards in U.S. history, like straight out of an apocalyptic action thriller. The blizzard of 2011 was a breathtaking affair. It took my breath away, not so much because of how much snow fell or how many people it affected, but because of how fast a city that had become a second home to me was transformed into complete and utter chaos within hours before my eyes. We called it snowpocalypse. The blizzard shut everything down. Schools, businesses, you name it. Thousands of flights were canceled, the subways were practically useless, and the roads, the roads were almost entirely impassable. The most emotionally gripping stories, though, came from the hundreds of people trapped in their vehicles along Lakeshore Drive, which is a major highway that runs north and south along the lake for much of the city. Thousands of cars and hundreds of buses take this route every day from home to work or school and back. But that day... In early February, the typical path was met by the harsh realities of Mother Nature and the violence of the blizzard. The snow fell at such a rate that cars were backed up for miles and became nearly buried in the bumper-to-bumper standstill with passengers still inside because walking from the highway to nearby shelter was not even a possibility after a certain hour into the storm. And as the sun set, All too early that evening, the sun and wind mixed with a ruthless chill that eliminated much of the remaining hope many held on to about making it home that evening. One story that still shakes my soul is the story of Erica Sharp. Wiping tears from her eyes, she recounted the harrowing story of her experience during the blizzard. Sharp and her two children A nine-year-old son and a one-year-old daughter were stuck in their van for over 12 hours along Lakeshore Drive, including many hours after their car had run out of gas, which was their sole source of heat. She recalls climbing into the back seat and curling up with her children, holding their bodies close to her to provide them with as much warmth and comfort as possible. She held them tight and reflected later, I was crying and praying. I kept thinking, I don't want to die here. But during the night, hope returned in the form of nearby residents of Lakeshore Drive. They emerged from their homes of warmth and safety and struggled through the storm, through their own backyards where the snow had reached to more than three feet in height. The neighbors brought with them flashlights and blankets, hot cocoa and food, knowing that even amid the chaos, amid the violence of the blizzard, even though they had been safe in their own homes, they still could and had to do something to bring warmth and love to others still suffering from the storm. Sharp recalls receiving a bag filled with food and drink, pushed through the ice-caked window of her van, and the confidence it brought to her that her family would not just make it through the night, but also, as she recalled later, a reminder that there are good people still out there. 
For many, this was a refrain, that the gifts of food and warmth were gratefully received and deeply needed, but that the gift of being reminded that there are good people out there amid the chaos of the storm was equally, if not more, precious. And the stories of selfless heroism by a diverse community coming together during the blizzard of 2011 are too countless to mention here, but they will stick with people for years and years to come. And then the blizzard passed, and the sun rose the next morning, and eventually the roads were cleared, and the cars and buses could be retrieved from what looked like a vehicle wasteland along Lakeshore Drive. Businesses and schools reopened, and life slowly got back to normal. To normal. And that was when I began to notice the sustained violence of the blizzard. In our reading this morning, Parker Palmer reminds us that the blizzards faced by farmers on the Great Plains would come and go, and they would be life-threatening, surely. But that we as a human race were and are still facing a blizzard of another sort. As my senior year pushed on, I continued to notice that there is a perpetual blizzard of injustice that suffocates people every day. And that this perpetual blizzard is more damaging because it doesn't come with three feet of snow or national news coverage. It doesn't thaw. For example, the issue of homelessness is an epidemic in Chicago, an injustice as seemingly insurmountable as the traffic jam along Lakeshore Drive. However, unlike the blizzard of 2011, thousands of people in Chicago are unable to awake from the violence of the storm. Thousands of people worry daily as the sun begins to set all too early each night whether they will be able to find shelter or safety through the night. Countless parents hold their children, like Erica Sharp did, close to their bodies to keep them warm as economic injustice swirls around them, instilling in them the fear of death and the hopelessness of finding relief for their hungry hearts. Homelessness and poverty are just two of a long list of injustices that face our world that we as Unitarian Universalists and congregations seek to overcome together. The perpetual blizzard of oppression reminds us as people of faith to notice, to look around, to witness to the suffering and pain of others, and then to reach out in love, knowing our actions do make a difference. The blizzard of systemic oppression can be seen rather clearly in places such as Chicago, where the issues and challenges facing the city are amplified and deeply intertwined. It was a sobering experience to attend both college and seminary in Chicago and to recognize how at the heart of ministry, of all ministry, is the continued struggle of catching sight and keeping sight of the storm and then combating it with love and justice. But Chicago is not unique. Communities large and small face the interconnected web of injustices. And our communities, large and small and everywhere in between, must be united to face them together with equal resolve. The most terrifying part of Palmer's reflection, I feel, of his reflection on the blizzards that face the farmers on the Great Plains is that many people would become lost 
amid the storm, even though they may still be within their own backyards. Even though they may still be within their own backyards, perhaps only feet from safety. What a helpless, paralyzing feeling that must be, whether one is lost in the storm, feet from safety, or safe in the home, hoping that all will be well, that everyone will make it to shelter and warmth. Palmer's comment is not to instill greater anxiety that all of us are a moment away from being consumed by the storm, but instead to allow the storm to nurture in us greater empathy and a deeper sense of our interconnectedness as people seeking to combat the storm and to live life fully. And not even six months after the Chicago blizzard and just a month after I graduated from college, I experienced this sense of our interconnectedness. I was in Chicago preparing to speak before several hundred high school sophomores from across the country about the importance of nurturing interfaith partnerships. My phone rang while I was out to lunch with a couple of friends from college. I learned from a friend on the phone from high school that one of our close mutual friends had committed suicide the night before. I was stunned breathless, unsure what I was hearing, crushed by the weight of the news. Gretchen was a brilliant artist. She had always been the most talented and creative among our group of friends who grew up attending art schools in the Milwaukee area. We all knew she was going to make it. She was going to share her art with the world, that she was going to save lives with her art. And then she died. So I immediately dropped everything and went back to Milwaukee that afternoon, knowing that I would have to return the next morning for the interfaith panel. But I knew that I had to do something. I knew I needed to be with my friends, that we needed to come together during this horrible tragedy, that being separated could only make things worse. When I arrived, I found my friends on a familiar porch that we would all hang out on throughout our college years. The arc of emotions were all over the place as I walked up to the house. Some friends were visibly devastated, some looked numb, and others were chatting with others in a way that tried to just bring an ounce of normalcy and comfort in being together again, even as this experience was anything but comfortable or normal for us. I recognized in that moment how people can respond to the trauma of the storm in so many ways. The feelings of guilt and blame, of frustration and anger as well, would swirl around our friend group for years to come. Truly, there are moments still today when these feelings just sort of resurface. But that's to be expected, I guess. Palmer wrote that the storm doesn't just rage outside of us through systemic issues, but, but that it also swirls within us as fear and frenzy, greed and deceit and indifference to the suffering of others. When we are living in the storm of systemic violence, the internal emotions that accompany the storm can present equally challenging obstacles that required our shared and persistent approach to healing together. So at Gretchen's funeral, I was asked to offer a closing reflection and prayer. And I wanted to say something, but I didn't know exactly what. What could I say, I thought. And then a friend of mine 
who never met Gretchen, who didn't live in Milwaukee, emailed me a quote by Stephen Levine that she found comforting when she lost her brother to suicide several years earlier. I shared this quote to her, uh, I, I shared this quote at her funeral and I want to share it again today because I think it holds particular meaning as we discuss finding our way home together amidst the storm. We can perhaps see how our loved ones always act as a mirror from our, for our heart, how they allow us access to ourselves by reflecting back the love within. We see how they are a connection with that place within us that is love. So where a loved one is lost, we grieve deeply the loss of connection within ourselves. I feel that Levine's understanding of love and connection, of suffering and death, really complement Palmer's vision of the storm. When taken together, they represent a beautiful articulation of the importance of nurturing loving communities, religious or otherwise. We come together to affirm our interconnectedness and our justice-seeking faith as we seek to build the beloved community. And in doing so, we reaffirm that our liberation is tied up with one another, that suffering and justice will be uh, injustice will be destroyed when we stick together and face the storm in a deep bond of covenant. When we face the storm together, our journey toward beloved community can highlight not only the triumph of justice, but also the inevitable losses and pains we all feel and we will face along the way. When we face the storm together, we can start taking greater risks in community, knowing that we are all held in a greater love by one another, and that we promise to try and be there for one another, rain or shine or even blizzard. I wanted to just take one additional second to note that Stephen Levine, who spent his life writing on issues of spirituality grief and suffering passed away last Sunday after a long struggle with illness. And I pray that he and his family find peace and that his teachings continue to bless the grieving and bring guidance to those seeking to find a new way through the inevitable suffering that comes with life. Palmer mentions that when we find our way through the storm, we are able to realign our soul, to find our bearings again in an otherwise chaotic world. I believe we do this not just as individuals, but also as religious communities, as we seek to discover how we will align ourselves together amidst the storm. Or as Levine might say, how our souls may reflect a part of ourselves to one another. When we can discover our soul together in community, even amidst the whiteout of the storm, even when things are changing and injustice is swirling, around us like never before, I believe we can discover a stronger covenant and mission that will pull us all not only through the storm, but toward a greater achievement of our most cherished values as a religious people. I have witnessed this power of people coming together amidst the storm over the last two and a half years while I've been serving as the ministerial intern with the UU Church of Greater Lansing. I arrived to East Lansing in August 2013 as my wife began her law degree at Michigan State. 
And little did I know when I, what I thought would be a small engagement with the congregation around young adult and campus ministry evolved into a wild adventure over the last three years that feels at times as unimaginable as our story for all ages this morning. The adventure has been at its core an embodiment of a congregation willing to risk the storm together to discover a deeper sense of our collective soul. So let's close with one more story. Three years ago, I wouldn't have guessed how this adventure would go. When I arrived, there had been ongoing conversations about the size and accessibility concerns of, their, of the, church, the church property. Four different potential properties had come and gone over the previous few years, and hope was becoming harder to hold on to that the congregation would ever be able to overcome the obstacles preventing it from being a physically and spiritually welcoming home. But then something happened. Less than a year after I started working at the church, the congregation discovered an abandoned school on the south side of Lansing. It hadn't been used for nearly three years and it smelled horribly and it was not for the sore, or not for sore eyes. But it was an invitation. It was an invitation for us as a religious people to imagine, to dream, to look a little bit further, to consider what might be possible, to try and see not just the storm, the ravage of that building, but through the storm to the justice and the ministry that this new spiritual home could provide them one day. And when we started imagining together, we noticed that the classrooms would be twice as large as our current classrooms, and an adapted gym could, could hold over 300 people for worship, and the 40,000-square-foot single-story school could provide more than enough space and accessibility that we were looking for. And the 10 acres of property would allow us room to grow over time to engage with nature while returning to a more diverse an urban town in which we have spent the vast majority of our 170-year history. And so over the last year and a half, the journey has continued. It hasn't always been easy. There have been moments of uncertainty and discomfort and moments of anxiety. Sometimes it felt more like a slog through the storm with snow up to our waist rather than a clear, proud march of confidence up the mountain. But deep down, I think we all realized something was true, that all of the potential risks we were taking felt worth it because we were doing it together. We bought the new property and sold our property. We raised over a million dollars for renovations of the new building, and we prepared for the cross-town journey to a new home. When we move in at the end of March, a new chapter of the journey will begin, and the storm will not have ceased. And after the first worship service, I keep thinking to myself, after that service, after we celebrate and recommit to our highest aspirations, I hope we can all go outside together. Even if the snow is still clinging to the earth as spring slowly pushes, pushes up from beneath. And once outside, we can look into the eyes of one another to see communion there, to see a reflection of our soul in one another and then to turn around, to face outward, and in each hand, a rope, and move out from that space into the world, knowing that there's always a way to return home 
And truly, that prayer is one we can all have each and every day that we gather as a religious people. May that be so, and amen.